Hi, everybody, and welcome to WChat. Today, we are covering a couple of very important topics. Our third episode was about reproductive justice with Dr. Aisha Wagner and Maura Rashid. They suggested that we speak with someone from Sister Song to get the grassroots perspective on reproductive justice. Well, we've been very fortunate to connect with Tony Bond Leonard, one of the original women to coin the term reproductive justice. So we are going to discuss reproductive justice from her perspective, as well as the work she is currently doing at the intersection of religion and abortion. We also want to preface that this episode is incredibly powerful and longer than our usual episode. However, we felt it was best to bring this episode to you as one long recording rather than two segmented recordings. We also want to do a shout out to Medical Students for Choice for promoting our podcast in their February newsletter. Stephanie and I sincerely hope that our listeners find this episode as powerful as we did while we were recording it. If you do, please rate us on iTunes and become a patron of the WChat podcast to help us keep recording with amazing guests. You can find out more information on how to support us and become a patron at www.womancenteredhealth.com. We would like to start out by giving our listeners a little background. You are our first guest, actually, who's not a clinician. So your background might be unique or interesting for our more clinical audience. Please talk a little bit about yourself, including your advocacy work and your education. Thank you, Stephanie. It is great to be on the show, and thank you so very much for having me. I came to this work about 20, almost 27 years ago, and I started really working, well, my first advocacy position was working as a medical advocate at a rape crisis center, and that was really my introduction to the women's movement. And after that, I got asked to assume the role as the first woman of color to be the executive director of an organization called the Chicago Abortion Fund in 1994. The Chicago Abortion Fund is one of over 100 abortion funds around the country that provides direct financial assistance to women seeking safe and affordable abortions. CAF was a unique abortion fund, if you will. It's one of the oldest in the Midwest, and they provided financial assistance for second trimester abortions. And so we got somewhat of a unique perspective because most of our clients were women of color and were African-American women. And it collected annual statistics at the end of every year. And we were noticing a number of things. One, that we had a number of women who were coming back to us every couple of years or so. And we noticed that many of these women were saying that they became pregnant as a result of failed methods of contraceptives. So CAF kind of offered this unique perspective that I think really leads into a lot of what we're talking about with the reproductive justice framework. After I left CAF, I went to work in an organization that I co-founded called Black Women for Reproductive Justice. It was also based in Chicago. It was actually the very first Black reproductive justice organization in the country. We also had an abortion fund within BWRJ, and we provided financial assistance for first trimester abortions, as well as practical support, which would be helping women with money for Childcare, money to get to the clinic if they need it, taxi or 
sometimes we had paid, we've paid for airplane tickets and also money for if they need to stay at a hotel. BWRJ also did a, t- a tremendous amount of public policy and advocacy work, everything from giving testimony before members of Congress to participating in advocacy bills around pieces of legislation in Illinois. And after I went to do some consulting work a few years later, several years later, at a group called the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, helping to create their scholars program around theology and the intersection of religion and reproductive justice. Right after I left the BWRJ, I'd always had an interest in the intersection of religion and reproductive health rights and justice. I do identify as a woman of faith of the Christian tradition and also a practitioner of traditional African spirituality. But in terms of the Christian tradition, I always wanted to really understand what were the theological underpinnings of anti-choice conservative evangelicals? What was this theological ground that they felt that they stood upon in denying women having the right to make decisions about their lives and their bodies? And so right after, or not right after, probably a a year and a half so later after I left Black Women for Reproductive Justice, I decided to go to seminary. And so we, my husband and I, we relocated to Southern California and I became a full-time student at Claremont School of Theology. And I did my master's in theology and ethics. And after that, some folks may say I'm crazy, but I decided to do a PhD in religion, ethics, and society. So right now I am just about halfway through my program and preparing for qualifying exams and kind of so working on my dissertation proposal. My my research is going to be to look at the reproductive and sexual attitudes and behaviors of Black women of faith between the ages of 22 and 44, and to really kind of examine what the dissonance is between what they decide, what their attitudes and behaviors are around their reproductive and sexual health versus what their respective religious institutions teach them. And so I'm really trying to see how do Black women of faith's reproductive and sexual decisions kind of coincide with or differ from what the theology is of their respective religious institution. My sense is that Black women, as most women do, tend to do what is in their own best interest and what will be in the best interest of their families in the communities in which they live. But that doesn't mean that the teachings, the theological teachings of their religious institution don't have some impact. It may not impact their direct action, but it may impact how they feel about themselves and the decisions that they have made about their reproductive and sexual health. So oftentimes their decisions and and even after they've made their decisions won't necessarily coincide with the with the theological teachings of their religious institution. And and so now I am actually a full-time PhD student and have a full-time job as the director of Physicians for Reproductive Health's 
Partnership for Abortion Provider Safety. And we call that PAPS, the acronym, like PAP smear. But PAPS really is trying to create this hub, if you will, a web-based hub of resources for abortion providers and providers in its broadest sense. It includes physicians and clinic administrators, clinicians, and frontline clinic staff, but providing resources to individuals who are providing abortion services so that they can be safe in their personal and their professional lives. So I have a pretty full plate these days, but it certainly keeps me busy. Well, I have a few things. One, you're among other crazy women who got their PhD as well, so so we get it. <laughs> Two, I would definitely be interested in what your results are following your dissertation. Nicole, it's, your dissertation sounds very similar to yours, just a different perspective and with a different group of yes, women. Yes, it does. I was thinking that. I think what makes this a little so very exciting, at least for from the standpoint of religious scholars in the religious academy, is that for the first time, really, there is this, what I hope my research will do is really work to bridge what I believe is this gap between secular activists, reproductive health rights and justice activists, and religious scholars, progressive religious scholars, who very much so want to be a part of this work. And they're really trying to understand this framework that we're talking about called reproductive justice. And they're trying to figure out how they can become the supportive progressive voices to support the work of secular activists in the movement. And so there's several religious scholars who are really excited about this research because it's part looking at the reproductive and sexual attitudes and behaviors of women from this very particular population. But from that, my goal is to create what we call a womanist theoethical argument for reproductive justice, reproductive and sexual justice, and to say what that looks like, what that looks like from a womanist theological perspective, and also to look at what ethical frameworks can support women having reproductive and sexual justice or achieving reproductive and sexual justice. So the other question we would like to ask is what informs your perspective? So why do you do what you do and what is most valuable to you? Sure. Well, I think in order to to really understand why I do what I do, I actually have to go back to when I was a little girl and my mother was, I guess you could say she was pro-choice, but it really wasn't something that really wasn't an issue that we talked about in my family. However, I knew she was pro-choice based upon her actions. And then she confirmed with me years later after I became an adult about her own personal experiences as a Black woman needing access to an abortion. So let me backtrack just a bit. When I was 12, I had a botched abortion. And I had my abortion actually the year after the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits the use of public funding for abortions, except for a few exceptions. I had my abortion the year after the Hyde Amendment was passed and instituted. And so I, I remember quite clearly what it was like for my mom, who 
was a single parent who was living with the chronic illness of multiple sclerosis, trying to figure out how she was going to get her 12-year-old daughter an abortion. And I remember just the lengths to which she went to try and make that possible. Everything from pulling back on paying the rent for that month and deciding not to pay some bills for that month. And so it was really a challenging moment for our family because it meant that it, among the kind of pressure of her daughter, 12-year-old daughter, being pregnant, she also had to try and figure out where she was going to get this money from. And because she had a chronic illness, she also was not able to work. And so we were getting monthly public assistance, which was really barely enough for us to survive on. But my mom certainly did the best she could to make it possible for us to thrive. And so it really meant that in her taking money from our monthly household expenses, our monthly living expenses, although I got the abortion, it meant we were behind in our rent. We were behind in some utilities. And so for my mom, you know, it was a matter of being faced with the prospect of having to now be in the position of catching up on bills. And, you know, when you have no sufficient monthly income coming in and the bills outweigh your income, it's pretty much impossible to really catch up. Unfortunately, she took me to what we subsequently found out was one of the worst clinics on the South Side of Chicago to go to. And it was a horrific experience for me because I was just treated so very inhumanely by the medical staff. And it was very painful because I really don't think that they gave me any anesthesia or any kind of anything to numb the pain. And there was this sense that this was to be my lesson, that the procedure had to be painful and that I would learn the lesson that a 12-year-old girl should learn about not being sexually active. And we found out six months later, or five or six months later, that I really wasn't pregnant because, well, I was pregnant, but the, the abortion was incomplete. But my stomach continued to grow. At that time in the 70s, there weren't as many women of color in the working in the pro-choice movement. And so my mom wasn't tied into the pro-choice community in Illinois, nor did she have a lot of information about reproductive and sexual health. So my family just assumed I was still pregnant and the abortion didn't take. And so I walked around for about five months or five or six months or so with my stomach continuing to grow and ended up getting very sick. And then one day woke up and I was literally hemorrhaging. And so my family rushed me to the emergency room. And that's when we found out that the abortion was incomplete. And in fact, it was just the residual tissue that was continuing to grow. And so the doctor said that I made it there just in time. So that was my kind of first experience. And, and, and then thereafter, growing up to be this, this young woman who really didn't have an understanding about my body and having three unintended, three more unintended pregnancies and having three more abortions, which were much better experiences than the first one. I went to clinics where the medical staff were friendly and were kind and treated me with dignity. But my aha moment was really when I went to the Chicago Abortion Fund to, to be the executive director, because believe it or not, 
I still didn't understand my body. I still had no sense of basic reproductive health 101. And I was in need of some reproductive health care. And there just happened to be a women's health organization called Chicago Women's Health Center in the same building as the Chicago Abortion Fund. And I went to Chicago Women's Health Center. And when I tell you it was the best experience I have ever had in my entire life, getting a gynae exam. The in Chicago Women's Health Center, they have physicians on staff, but they also have trained health workers who know how to give gynae exams and can provide other kinds of reproductive health care to women. And so I had a health worker who did something no one had ever done. And all of my experiences going to the doctor, she taught me basic reproductive health care 101. She did the gynae exam and the, the lights were low and there were candles and there were mittens on the stirrups so my feet wouldn't be cold. And the speculum was a little, it was room, you know, room temperature so it wouldn't be too cold. And she asked me if anyone had ever shown me my cervix. And I, I responded, I didn't even know that you could see your own cervix. And so after she inserted the speculum, she put a mirror and a flashlight in between my legs and showed me my my cervix and said, this is what your cervix looks like. And after that, she said, has anyone ever told you how to track your menstrual cycle so that you can have control over your fertility? And I responded, of course, no. And so she took the time to really help me understand my menstrual cycle, what the first day of my menstrual cycle was, how to understand and how to kind of know what my range of time was for ovulation. And for me, that was an aha moment. And it was really, I think at that time, that it became very clear to me that my experiences were not an anomaly, particularly in my culture, in African-American community, but that there were a lot of African-American women who didn't have basic reproductive health 101 education. And so I became, I think, pretty much determined that I wanted to ensure that all women, but specifically Black women, had that kind of agency, the same kind of agency that I had found to be able to control my fertility and to have knowledge and information about my reproductive and sexual health. And so along with thinking back, reflecting back, to my own kind of reproductive and sexual experiences and really not wanting any wanting to see any other woman or young woman go through the kinds of challenges that I had and really understanding that the more information that we can provide to women and girls, the more they become empowered and the more they can have agency over their own reproductive and sexual lives. So that's how I, I came to this work and that's really what informs my perspective. That was an incredibly powerful story, and I hope that our listeners, hopefully that translates to them as well. Thank you for sharing that. You're very welcome. Yeah, that's a deeply personal story, and we can't thank you enough for sharing it because that really is a powerful story and and obviously really highlights why you're doing what you're doing. Well, I think it's actually important for us to share those kinds of stories. I don't, you know, not everyone has to share their story, but I think those of us who are willing and and able to share our stories, those are the stories that need to be heard because not not only does it 
really shape the hearts and minds of the general public to really understand that behind the jargon, behind the theories and the frameworks are women who bring these lived experiences. And that is really how we come up with the theories and the frameworks. And our lived experiences are what we're speaking from. And it also keeps the historical information relevant because you have so many individuals in current generations who don't really know the stories, right? Who oftentimes don't know the experiences of what it means to have an incomplete abortion or what it means to not be able to understand or have a, a not have a sense or a not or knowledge about your reproductive and sexual health or your you know or your body or what it really means not to have agency and so i think it's important for those of us who are willing to be courageous and share the stories because they only help our our movement mm-hmm. so I think we'll jump right in here and kind of keeping with how you're talking about from these situations arises theories and frameworks. Could you tell us a little bit about how the term reproductive justice came to be? Sure. So the term reproductive justice was coined in 1994 by 12 Black women who were working in the reproductive health and rights movement. And it kind of came about while we were at a conference in June of 94 that was sponsored by the Illinois Pro-Choice Alliance and the Ms. Foundation for Women. And at this conference, the focus of the of the conversation or the discourse was about the health care plan being proposed by the Clinton administration for universal health care. And there were roughly 150 women or so at this conference, but there were only 12 Black women at this conference. And so we did what oftentimes Black women tend to do, or women of color tend to do, we caucused. (laughs) We all piled up in the hotel room of one of the founding mothers, Loretta Ross, and kind of really talked about not just universal health care, but what was the impact of this two-tiered health care system at the time? And what was the harsh realities for many women of color? And specifically, what were those realities? What did those realities look like for Black women? And so we kind of seized upon, if you will, this political moment, an important political moment, we felt, to really raise the voices of Black women about the need for access to quality and affordable health care in the U.S. and also what were some of the unique reproductive and sexual health needs of Black women. And so from our perspective, we felt like Not only did the conversation need to be about access to abortion services, but it also needed to include the full range of reproductive health services like well-woman care and pre- and postnatal care, information and treatment and prevention for fibroids, which Black women have exceedingly high rates of, care and treatment for cervical and breast cancer. Again, Black women have very high rates of mortality from breast cancer. It isn't that Black women get breast cancer more than any other population necessarily, but it really is about the fact that our incidents are detected later and we get treated later. And also information about or really 
addressing the issue of the rates of infant and maternal morbidity and mortality, which if we look at now are exceedingly high for Black women. We also knew that Black women were experiencing high rates of intimate partner violence, like sexual assault and domestic violence, and also treatment and prevention and education about HIV, AIDS, and other sexually transmitted uh, infections, and also information and access to safe and affordable abortion services. And so for our, from our perspective, we felt like the universal, any plan for healthcare, universal or, and what we have now with the Affordable Care Act, any plan for healthcare in this country needed to address those kinds of reproductive and sexual health issues. And from our reading of the then Clinton administration's proposal, it didn't include all of that. And so we wanted to put our voices forward about those issues. And so we called ourselves Women of African Descent for Reproductive Justice. We chose that name because we felt like it highlighted the intersectionality of women's lives and the multiple forms of oppression that we encounter, like race and class and gender, that really prevent women of color from living healthy and whole reproductive and sexual lives. And so we decided that we were going to mobilize women across the United States to sign on to a statement that spoke to our lived experiences. And I have to chuckle because, you know, in hindsight, it was a lofty aspiration that we were going to mobilize Black women across the United States, but we did. So in August 16th of 1994, we took out a full page ad with the, nine, with the names of 836 Black women around the country. Um, and we placed that ad in the Washington Post and Roll Call, which is a Washington, D.C based newspaper that covered people, politics, and policy on Capitol Hill. So we we were able to get signatures or endorsements from Black female celebrities like author Alice Walker and supermodel Veronica Webb. And we had all of the Black female state and federal legislators and some religious leaders. So we had Congresswomen Eleanor Holmes Norton and Maxine Waters and Carrie Meek and Cynthia McKinney and Eva Clayton sign on to it. And we even had some well-known, or I would say some Black female clergy members to sign on to the ad. One of the founding mothers, one of the other founding mothers of the reproductive justice framework is a woman named Reverend Alma Faith Crawford. And so she was very instrumental in helping us to get some Black female religious leaders to sign on, as well as some of the other founding mothers of the RJ framework. And so we held a press conference and had some of the state and federal female, some of the federal female legislators to speak at that, at that press conference, which was organized by one of two other founding mothers, a woman named Mabel Thomas. We call her Abel Mabel Thomas, who's now a Georgia state legislator. And Cynthia Newble, who was working at the Black Women's Health Imperative that's formerly known as the National Black Women's Health Project. Cynthia is currently a Richmond, Virginia City Council member. And so they really worked to help organize this press conference at the National Press Club. And so that was a huge accomplishment. We were able to raise a little over $40,000 to take out these ads in just over a month to make our voices heard. We took a few, we, you know, initiated a few more actions, if you will. We did a sign-on letter in support of then Surgeon General Jocelyn Elders, who was really being targeted for her comments about masturbation as a healthy sexual practice 
and her support for drug treatment. We also issued a statement in support of David Satcher as the incoming Surgeon General because of his stance on women's reproductive and sexual health and access to reproductive and sexual health services. And then after that, reproductive justice kind of laid dormant for until about 2003. But in between that time, one of the founding, uh, Loretta Ross, another one of the founding mothers, went to the International Conference on Population and Development in Cairo, Egypt, in September of 94. And that's where she came to see that women around the world were confronting similar issues around access to reproductive and sexual health issues. And that is really where we began to see, if you will, the language about reproductive and sexual health enter the discourse, really, about women's health issues. And however, at that conference, the term sexual rights was created. And so there was this link that occurred between issues of poverty and reproductive health that was affirmed. Now, unfortunately, at the Beijing Fourth World Conference for Women in 1995, they rejected the term sexual rights. Fast forward to 2003, reproductive justice was kind of picked up again by a group called Asian Communities for Reproductive Justice, which is now called Forward Together. They worked in partnership with Sister Song to come up with what they called a new vision for reproductive justice. And they created this report that analyzed the three frameworks of reproductive health, reproductive rights, and reproductive justice. And so they put forth the kind of first critical analysis, if you will, of these frameworks. After that, Loretta Ross was asked to help come and organize around the Women's March in 2004. There was a call put out about about this Women's March. And many of your listeners may not know that that 2004 Women's March was initially called the March for Choice. Women of color around the country said, we will not come to that march if you call it the March for Choice, for a number of reasons. One, women of color were not included in the planning of the march. And we understood or you know, felt like a march called the March for Choice did not speak to the varying forms of reproductive and sexual oppression that we encountered. And so Loretta Ross was instrumental in getting the march organizers bring in and include the voices of two major reproductive health and rights organizations. One, the Black Women's Health Imperative, and then National Latinas for Reproductive Health, making sure that they were at the table and were part of the key decision-making around that march. The second thing that she pushed them to do was to call this the March for Women's Lives, because it really was a march about our lives. It wasn't necessarily just a march about choice. It was a march about our lives and the various issues that impact and impeded our ability to lead healthy reproductive and sexual lives. And in 2004, after that, that is where you really saw reproductive justice kind of really take off and become this moving train that along the way gathered more steam 
Loretta began to do a tremendous amount of work to look at the human rights framework and to infuse that into the reproductive justice framework. And along the way, you saw this this train, like kind of one pick up steam, but gather more and more supporters as it moved down the track. And that's really how reproductive justice kind of came to fruition, birthed first by Black women and then gaining momentum and steam in 2003 and becoming this framework that we, we all, many of us all know and love today. So you had mentioned an organization called Sister Song. Could you just briefly tell our listeners what is Sister Song? Sure. So Sister Song is a collective that was formed in 1997 by 16 women of color organizations. They were from what we call four mini communities, Native American, Native American and Indigenous women, African American women, Latina and Asian American women. And the women in this group pretty much recognized that we had both the right and the agency to represent ourselves and our communities. And the equally compelling need to advance the perspectives and needs of women of color. And so Sister Song is based in Atlanta, Georgia. It's a membership organization. It's a national membership organization. And really its goal is to build this network of individuals and organizations to affect changes in institutional policies, in federal and state legislative policies, and to really bring the voices of women who have historically been on the margins of the, of the movement, of the reproductive uh, rights and health movement, and to bring their voices to the center of the discourse, to really center their voices, their lives, and their lived experiences. I served on the board of Sister Song as its very first board chair from, oh, I would say the early 2000s up until 2010. It was a very long board chairship. And during that time, got the opportunity to participate in two pretty historic conferences, one which just happened or was just repeated in October of 2017 called Let's Talk About Sex. The first conference was held in Chicago and Black Women for Reproductive Justice, the group that that I was at, kind of was the local anchor organization for that conference. And then a couple of years later, the next Let's Talk About Sex conference was held in Miami, Florida. And then, of course, the third Let's Talk About Sex conference was held last year. However, in between that time, Sister Song held a number of important membership meetings. Its first annual conference was held in Atlanta. This is where the term reproductive justice was kind of tested with the individuals who attended that conference. And they overwhelmingly embraced the term because it was something about this term and the way that the framework was explained that spoke to their lived experiences and also offered a sound strategy for organizing and mobilizing women of color around issues of reproductive and and sexual health. So that's, we talk about the magic of Sister Song. One, 
it is the first successful attempt after, I think, at least two to bring together women of color from different races and ethnicities to create this kind of National Women of Color Collective. It's the first successful collective that has existed for such a very long time. I mean, Sister Song turned 20 last year. And so, you know, it's a, when you think about it, uh, an example of an organization that accomplished something pretty significant in the history of the lives of women of color which is to create this collective that could hold all of these different communities of color and could also be the vessel through which women of color were able to organize around and mobilize around and talk about their myriad of experiences around issues of reproductive and sexual health. And I just want to ask one quick question of clarification, especially since our listeners are predominantly practitioners or in the medical field. Is Sister Song, or or the 12 women rather, who originally coined this term, is there a medical tie there? Or is this truly a grassroots organization that has now come into the medical sector? It is truly a grassroots organization that's come into the medical sector. There were no providers or medical practitioners who were amongst the founding mothers. We were all directly from the grassroots. And likewise with Sister Song, all of us were from the grassroots. All of the members, all of the 16 organizations were grassroots organizations who worked with populations of women of color who had not only these lived experiences around their reproductive and sexual health, but also had some unique experiences around sometimes their interactions with members of the medical profession. So yeah, we we all came from directly from the grassroots movement. I just think that's a really important point and something for us to really think about. Well, just a follow-up question related to that. Could you speak to how providers got into this movement or the history of that? Well, Sister Song and Loretta Ross have were very instrumental in taking the reproductive justice theory and framework to the provider community, starting with medical students for choice. I know I have done my fair share of speaking engagements to medical students for choice, as well as a few grand rounds about reproductive justice. Likewise for Loretta Ross and Sister Song, which I need to mention that is currently being led by just a phenomenal younger sister named Monica Simpson. She's now the executive director. Loretta Ross was formerly the at the helm of Sister Song and kind of handed that over to Monica Simpson. And so, you know, over the years, I think all of us have been involved in not only direct education and advocacy with members of the medical community about the need to really look at the provision of services through this lens, but also have been, I think, the voices, the folks who have been quite comfortable with, I'm sure, sometimes being the thorn in provider side saying, you know, these are some of the unique perspectives that women of color present with, and you need to hear these perspectives, and it needs to inform the way that you provide 
services, it, it may be helpful for your listeners to really understand the reproductive justice framework. And, and quite simply, think of it as this. Reproductive justice doesn't seek to replace reproductive health or reproductive rights, because we understand that all of the three frameworks offer something very important to this broader movement. Reproductive health is about service delivery. It's about individual service delivery. It is about the providers. It is about the critical services that providers provide to women every day around abortion services, contraceptives, well woman care, all forms of reproductive and sexual health services. And so we need the reproductive health framework because that's the service delivery and we need our providers, right? The reproductive rights framework is about legal advocacy. So it's about abortion advocacy. It's about legal strategies based on the U.S. Constitution. It's about the support that providers need against anti-choice zealots who want to try and prevent providers from being able to provide reproductive, critical reproductive health services like abortion. It's about the, the services like groups of physicians for reproductive health in their efforts to help providers to be safe and also the very important advocacy and trainings that they offer to providers around getting the scientific and medical voice out to the general public, to the public square. And and groups like National Abortion Federation and Feminist Majority, who do so much work around clinic access and ways that providers can be safe, arguing for pieces of legislation that keep providers safe and clinics safe and therefore make make it safe for women to be able to come and get services. So that's your reproductive rights framework. Reproductive justice is really about organizing through a human rights lens. So what we did with reproductive justice, quite simply, we took Black feminist theory, the human rights framework, meshed it together and applied it to reproductive politics. So it's about organizing using this global kind of human rights standard. It's about preventing the violations in the first place, right? And so the core principles of reproductive justice are that every woman has the human right to decide if and when they will have a baby and the conditions under which they will have birth. And this includes the ability to determine what the birthing experience will look like. Will you have a a midwife? Will you have a birth doula? Will you have natural childbirth where possible? That you have key decision-making influence on whether you will have a vaginal birth after a cesarean section. To have a positive overall labor and birthing experience. Also for the woman who might have, for example, a history of pelvic inflammatory disease, which we know can sometimes lead to infertility, that She has access to the reproductive technology to, if possible, treat that infertility so that she can have children in the future, as well as the woman who may have fibroids to have the right to receive the surgical procedure to remove the fibroids so that she can possibly become pregnant if that's her desire. So it really includes affirming and creating and supporting those kinds of conditions. The next core principle is the human right to decide if you will not have a a child, 
and options for preventing or ending that pregnancy. So this includes access to safe and woman-controlled methods of contraception. And this is important when we say woman-controlled because it really addresses the historical forced and coercive use of contraception on women of color. And I'm speaking very specifically about in the 70s when the scientific and medical profession tested birth control pills on Puerto Rican women as well as in the late 80s and early 90s, the some of the issues surrounding Norplant and some of the unique contraindications for women of color and some of the side effects that women of color were experiencing, and even some issues around Depo-Provera, that women be offered a greater plethora of contraceptive methods that they can control. We're also talking about the connection between HIV AIDS and that part of preventing pregnancy includes information and access to preventative measures against sexually transmitted infections like HIV. It also includes access to safe and affordable abortion services, both surgical and medical abortion. So it's about thinking very expansively about what is it that a woman needs to be able to prevent or end a pregnancy. The third core principle is that women have the human right to be able to parent the children they already have with the necessary social supports in a safe environment, living in healthy communities without fear of violence from individuals or the government. This third principle really speaks to the human right to access necessary health care. It speaks to the issues around food sustainability and food security that occur in many communities of color who may not have access to grocery stores that offer organic foods. The local gas station mart might be their nearest store where they can get food. The nearest full-fledged grocery store could be somewhere between 10 and 15 miles away from them. And also the fact that, you know, oftentimes we say, or individuals may wonder why uh, people in communities of color have what they deem as unhealthy eating habits and behaviors. It isn't just that we can't access oftentimes healthy foods. It's also that we can't afford a lot of the organic foods. It's the difference, if you think about it like this, it's the difference for a woman of color who's getting monthly public assistance or working a low-wage job. It's the difference between being able to afford a gallon of milk that may have the growth hormone in it, which we know isn't as healthy, that costs $1.99, or paying almost $4 for half a gallon of organic milk without the hormone in it. That gallon of milk is going to last much longer and is going to feed more people than that half gallon of milk, particularly if a woman might have one or two or three children. It really is it's really those kinds of differences and the way in which we need to kind of look through that lens of what it means to provide necessary social supports. It also includes living in environments that are free from environmental toxins. And here, I would offer that your listeners may want to think about, for example, the Flint water crisis and the lead that has been found to be 
and the water system. It's also about the kinds of diesel fuel emissions and other toxins that are in communities of color because communities of color tend to have higher rates of vehicles like trucks and such that pass directly through their communities, or they may be situated near landfills that emit environmental toxins or live in areas that when you, uh, it's interesting when you talk about communities being able to have things like community gardens, oftentimes the soil even in our communities isn't healthy to sustain and support growing healthy food. And so it really is taking that kind of lens. And I know it's asking people to think about it in a way that pulls the lids all the way back. But that's really what the reproductive justice framework is about. It's about more than just families surviving, but what does it mean for families to thrive? And since that time, the a couple of more core principles have been added to the reproductive justice framework, which are really about sexual rights, the right to determine and live out your sexuality and your sexual orientation and the right to love whomever you choose to love, the right to access healthcare if you are lesbian, gay, trans, or members of the intersex community. And so it really is thinking about what are the needs, what are the services that and supports that individuals need to thrive in their communities. I would add one last thing for that. What does it mean for particularly Black and Brown families to live in communities where they don't fear the being killed by law enforcement who have no understanding of what it means to interact with communities of color and also the issues around the prison industrial complex. And so it really is thinking about this thing called reproductive and sexual health in its broadest sense. Thank you for that explanation, Tony. I think that was really clear and helpful to our listeners and to myself personally. So my next question that ties into what you just talked about, what do you think is critical for healthcare providers to understand about reproductive justice? At the core of reproductive justice is what we call intersectionality. Intersectionality is a model that was developed by Black feminists in the 1960s, from the 1960s to the 1980s. Intersectionality has always existed, or this term, really, right? Because intersectionality is a term that was used by critical race theorists. But a woman, a, a professor, a scholar named Kimberly Crenshaw, really kind of named intersectionality in 1989 and talked about it in a way that recognized that women of color experience multiple oppressions at the same time. Now, we know that in the world that we live in today, intersectionality can impact anybody, but particularly for women of color, that women of color, when we talk about forms of oppression, that those are oftentimes for women of color based on race class, and gender. And they all of those areas can be operating simultaneously. And they're integrative, right? And it really 
challenges the notion of single issue organizing and says that the work that needs to be done has to address the multiple identities that individuals carry. So remember when I talked about earlier during the show, I talked about being this 12-year-old girl having an abortion and it being a horrible experience. Part of the reason that it was a horrible experience is because we were treated differently. I was treated differently because of my age, because of my race, because I was a a young African-American girl. And because of my class, because they knew that we were low income. And so, and also because I was female. So all of those issues were operating simultaneously and dictated the way that I was treated. Likewise, what I think providers need to understand is that when women come for services, oftentimes they're not coming just for that. Or when they come, it's not It may not be that one service that they are in need of that is impacting their lives. It could be multiple things that's impacting their lives at any given moment. A woman could be coming for her monthly exam. It could very well be a domestic domestic violence survivor, or she could be coming for an abortion procedure, and though she's there, and was able to get there for the abortion. You know what you may not know is all of the challenges and hoops that she had to go through to get there. I think people know that women sometimes have to travel long distances, but what you may not know is that she may have, I don't know, braided hair for several days and maybe dead tired on her feet to make money to get that abortion or she may have pawned or sold something, something that may have been very precious to her. To, co- to come up with that money. Or she may have put off paying her rent and her utilities like my mom did in order to get that abortion. Or she might be missing time from work to be there to get that abortion. And if she's having a second trimester procedure and she has to come for more than one day, she has to come for two days in a row, that's two days of pay that she doesn't get. Or she may be using two days of her vacation time or sick time to be there, which takes away from the vacation time and sick days she may need further down the line for her other children, She ha- if she has other children, if they're sick or something happens where she needs to be present for something around their lives. And so providers need to know that and consider that women who are experiencing forms of reproductive oppression may have all of these issues operating simultaneously and also need to understand that controlling bodies controls entire communities. So the ability of individuals, women, to be able to be autonomous in their reproductive and sexual lives and what's happening to their bodies is directly related to what's happening in their communities. So if she is living in community that may not be as safe, she may have to worry about being safe as she comes, goes to and from work. She might be worried about the safety of her children when they go outside and play. It's also the pathway to controlling entire communities in that when women have to worry about these kinds of issues, right, that is my child going to make it home from school, right? Is my child going to make it home from school because they have to cross several gang 
territories? Are they going to make it home safe? Or are they going to make it home safe without being harassed by the police because they look a certain way? Or are they going to survive? Are they going to live to make it home safely? All of these issues and considerations providers really need to, we would encourage providers to really think about, even down to our under certain communities of colors understanding about how you define a pregnancy, how you talk about it. I know in our world, in our movement, it's common to talk about the pregnancy as a fetus. But I think what many providers should understand is that oftentimes for women of color, the point at which we decide that we're going to carry a pregnancy to term is the point at which oftentimes that fetus becomes a baby that we're carrying. And so I think it's really important to always be checking in with women about how do they define or how are they describing their pregnancy? And also to understand that when a woman comes to have an abortion and she might be struggling with her faith tradition and might have some feelings around having this abortion and adhering to what her faith tradition says, it's not that she's not sure. She's just trying to make peace with this decision that she's getting ready to make. It doesn't mean she doesn't want to have the abortion. What she's trying to grapple with is how does she reconcile exercising what she knows is her right to be self-autonomous and to exercise her free will and her moral authority with what her respect, sometimes respect of faith tradition teaches her theologically. Yeah. So those are some of the things, of course, there, you know, there's more, but those are the kinds of things that I think providers um, should definitely hold and keep in mind as they provide services to women. I mean, especially around long acting reversible methods of contraceptives, that getting pregnant isn't the worst thing that can happen for us. It isn't a fair start oftentimes, but contracting a sexually transmitted infection, an incurable sexually transmitted infection like HIV or herpes can be devastating for us. And in addition to needing access to safe and effective methods of contraceptives, we really need for medical providers to think as well about the importance of helping us to prevent uh, sexually transmitted infections. Oftentimes it seems like the need to prevent unintended pregnancies sometimes trumps the need for women to live free from sexually transmitted infections. But I would offer that the two are equally important. And so I would add that as something else that I would really hope that providers strongly uh, hold as they provide services to, to women, particularly women of color. So Tony, you mentioned a couple times during our talk about long-acting reversible contraception and just recently about how preventing unintended pregnancy sometimes seems to trump the prevention of STIs. And I thought that was really a good perspective to clinicians to think about that. So we spoke with doctors Wagner and Rashid about the reproductive justice from the clinician's perspective, and they gave us some everyday examples of reproductive oppression from healthcare providers. One of the common examples is when clinicians pressure women to get the long-acting reversible contraception 
Can you speak more about ways that you have heard from women of color speak about how providers have attempted to oppress them, either in getting larks or in other ways? Sure. Answering that question, it brings to mind, I'm also a trained doula. And one of the very first women I worked with, we're in the delivery room. She just got through having a healthy delivery. And the nurse asked her and the doctor asked her, so mom, now that you have had your baby, it's important that you think about ways to prevent unintended pregnancy in the future. And we have a method of contraception called Dapropovira that it's a shot that you get every three months that you can get. And we can insert that now. We can do that now. Or, you know, there are other methods that we can talk about. And, you know, she just got through having the most wonderful experience in her life. And at the same time, probably one of the most painful experiences of her life. And it really just wasn't the time to be talking about contraception. For some women, it's okay. For this particular client, it wasn't. And so she responded, no. I don't, I, yeah, I can't think about that right now. And, but they came back again and they, they were persistent. And finally, I had to step in and say, you know, she's really asking you not to have this conversation with her right now. She can't think about it right now. Maybe come back and ask her before she leaves, you know, the day before she leaves or the day that she leaves, getting ready to leave. Ask her, is this something, is this something she's interested in? Maybe ask her when she comes back for her checkup. But she's saying to you, I can't handle this right now. And this isn't the most important thing to me right now. I just got through, I'm going through childbirth. And so that was one instance where it just seemed like, wow, that's not, yeah, we get the importance of contraception, but that's not the most important thing for her right now. The second thing is that this wasn't an unintended pregnancy. She got pregnant on purpose. And so the way even that they were referencing, making reference to even this pregnancy by saying, so let's talk about contraception so that you can prevent future unintended pregnancies. This wasn't an unintended pregnancy. That's one example. Another example is around particularly women with disabilities, understanding that oftentimes language that providers can use can be prohibitive. Sometimes the medical jargon, the technical jargon can be a little challenging to understand. And also it might be difficult for a woman with a physical disability to get on the table to have that dining exam. And sometimes there's a need to figure out how do you interact with people in using language that is not so technical and doesn't use so much medical jargon. Sometimes people nod their heads and it seems like they understand, but sometimes they may not. And I know we live in a, a society today where it's a little difficult, a little challenging for providers to be able to take as much time as they used to in the past. But sometimes that extra time is really important because women may have questions that they need to have answered about their bodies. I know providers can't spend a whole bunch of time talking about basic reproductive health 101, but it might not be a bad idea to check in with a woman and ask her, do you need information about tracking your menstrual cycle? Do you understand your menstrual cycle? Do you know what the first day of your menstrual cycle is? You may find that a lot of women might not know that the first day of their menstrual cycle is the first day of bleeding. It's not uncommon 
for women to think that the first day of her menstrual cycle is after her last day of bleeding. Those kinds of things that are empowering to women that we sometimes don't think about. So it's not a form of reproductive oppression, oppression that last example, but it really is a, an example of reproductive empowerment for women. No, thank you. I think those are good tips for our listeners. I think though, if I could add, the last thing is to really begin to explore the use of pre-exposure prophylactics in tandem, being offered in tandem with long-acting reversible methods of contraceptives. Because we know that many women do not dual contracept. So if you've got the shot or you got Norplant or you have an IUD, oftentimes you're not going to use a condom too. That's just the reality of many women's lives. And so particularly if you are a domestic violence survivor and you're with an abusive partner, demanding that your partner use a condom could be a sign to that partner of some sort of infidelity. We need to begin to think about the positive aspects of offering PrEP to women in conjunction with LARCs. It could really help to save lives and prevent exposure to HIV. And so that's something else for, I think, providers to begin to consider. And I know many are, but we need so many more to begin to explore and we need more conversation and we need more, more providers to begin to think about offering that in tandem. Yeah, that's really, really important. So Tony, you had previously talked about this intersection of religion with reproductive justice. And in your previous answer, you talked about women who were seeking abortions and how that may align or not align with their religious beliefs. And one question that we had for you was how, as a provider, when you're confronted with a patient who has concerns about the intersection of religion and abortion, for example, what will God think if I have an abortion, how can providers navigate these discussions? Well, the first thing that I would offer is that when those questions arise, they deserve a response, right? But I don't think that providers, you know, all providers need to go and get a a quick education, right, in religion and theology. But I do think it's important to affirm how she's feeling. There's some conversation, I think, particularly amongst providers of faith. What does it mean for and how can providers of faith articulate why they provide abortions because of their faith? and not in spite of it. I think with a question about, am I going to, am I going to go to hell? Is God going to punish me? When those kinds of questions arise, that it's important to, and it's okay to say, if you're a provider of faith, to say, I'm a provider of faith. You know, I, well, I am a person of faith and that's not my understanding of God, but that my understanding is that God gives us free will and the capacity to be able to make important decisions about our lives. And all of us have this gift or this capacity to make decisions about our lives. The God that I know is not a judgmental God or a God that punishes you for making a decision. And in making this decision, in fact, God is always with you in making your decisions. If you're not a provider of faith, then it's important to offer a woman comfort in ways that could be, you know, asking her, well, are there any resources in your faith tradition that might support you in making this 
decision. And if you're not a provider of faith, it's okay to say, well, you know, I'm I'm not really an individual who has a religious tradition, but I can say my understanding of the capacity of humans is to be able to make decisions about their lives and their bodies and to affirm the woman and that decision and to affirm that the decision that she's making can only be good if it's in her own best interest and the best interest of her family. I think it's important to just affirm the woman's decision. And you can always offer, I may not be a religious person, but from everything that I know about religion, it's my sense that God is not a judgmental God and that the resources have been provided for people to make decisions. And you are availing yourself of those resources to make decisions about your life and to affirm her in doing that. It gets a little complicated because so many fractions of traditions have their own individual beliefs about abortion, from the Christian evangelicals to Catholicism. The difference between the two is that Catholicism, and I oftentimes say I probably have a greater respect for the stance of uh, Catholicism and their position on abortion, because at least it's grounded in some kind of theological framing that we can pinpoint. And without getting too much in the weeds, Catholicism and uh, really rest or its position on abortion really rests upon what we call natural law theory, which is about, which is really a theory of morality, what's good and what's evil. And the fact that humans have this internal sense of what's good and what's not. With Christian evangelicals, it's a little bit bit more difficult to pinpoint what their theological grounding is for denying women a a right to choose. Oftentimes they point to the canonical text of Christianity, which is the Bible. But oftentimes what the Bible says, what we read cannot be interpreted in its literal sense. We have to use what we call commentaries and, you know, kind of look at what was happening during the time that it was written, that text was written to get a a clear understanding about what a text may mean. So, you know, where it may seem like uh, a text may say in one particular text that anti-choice conservatives use is, I knew you uh, when you were, and I'm paraphrasing, I knew you when you were being weaved in the womb. Well, that's not a a scripture that is anti-abortion, but it is more about what was happening during the time and had nothing to do with a woman being pregnant in the literal sense. So, you know, it's a little harder to kind of really understand the grounding, the theological grounding of Christian evangelicals. But, you know, I think that there are some resources that physicians can offer women. There are groups like the Religious Institute and groups like Planned Parenthood who are now offering resources to support women who are grappling with their faith in the midst of making the decision to have an abortion. There is a model of what we call pastoral care around reproductive decision-making and reproductive loss that is really, you know, grounded in showing empathy and to affirm and support a woman's feelings, exhibiting amount of warmth, and also at the same time ensuring 
that that woman is treated with respect and also holding the information that she shares in confidence. But understanding that women, sometimes some women are going to bring forth those questions. I had one provider tell me that during the abortion, the woman literally was praying and asking for forgiveness during the abortion. And sometimes what you will say will make, will make a difference. And sometimes you just need to let women do what they need to do. That example of the woman praying during the abortion, there was probably nothing that you could say to her beyond, I affirm your, your decision. And I believe that the God that you believe in supports and affirms your, affirms your decision because you made it here. And then to let her say her prayers, if that's what she needs to, to find comfort. So the point is, when you can address the concerns, if you're directly asked, if you're going, am I going to hell? You can respond, you know, that's not my understanding and that's not what I believe. I don't believe in a God that's judgmental or that would send anybody to hell, to a place called hell. The God that I know is a loving God. The God that I know is a God that is a supportive God and that creates the conditions for women to be able to make the decisions that they need to make. And when there's no answer that need be given, like in the instance of the woman who was praying, let her pray. And so I think those are the, the ways in which providers can handle those instances. I am working with a group of religious scholars, actually, though, who are working on some resources for providers to be able to answer some of these questions. Resources around how do you talk with women, as well as resources for providers of faith to be able to articulate why they provide um, abortions as a person of faith. That was actually going to be my next question was kind of turning that in our market research kind of had some questions about that too, that as a provider, what do you say when the patient says you're going to hell because you provide abortions? How do doctors feel those sentiments? Well, it really depends upon what your faith tradition is, right? Because we know that there are some similarities across traditions. We know that Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all come from what we call the Abrahamic traditions or the Abrahamic faith. So there's some similarities. But then when you get into other traditions like Buddhism and um, Hinduism and even in traditional African spirituality, there's some variances, right? It depends upon what your understanding is of your particular faith tradition. So for providers who are of the Christian tradition, I often refer them to what we call the Gospels, which would be part of the Second Testament, which really talks about what Jesus would do. And everything that I know and understand as a religious scholar about what Jesus would do is about liberation and about freedom and about autonomy and about loving our brothers and sisters and treating each other in the ways that we indeed ourselves would like to be treated. It is about being non-judgmental and it is about always, always being affirming and supportive. It even talks about one of the texts or one of the books is written by a physician who we know is Luke. And so we know that there were physicians during that time who provided services to both women and men though oftentimes very limited services, because we know during that time, ancient biblical times, that medical 
and scientific resources were slim to none. Nevertheless, we do know that that text tells us about the importance of liberation of God's people. And part of liberation means ending forms of oppression. And we know that today, reproductive and sexual oppression are key types of oppression that vulnerable populations must try to transcend. And so we know that one way that can be made possible is through the care and support that providers can offer. For for a provider of faith, that can be where you start your conversation. If you're a provider of the Christian tradition, that my understanding of my tradition says that I have a responsibility to love my neighbor. And part of loving my neighbor, I have chosen, the route I have chosen to do that is to be a provider of medical care. And part of the medical care that I understand women need is to be empowered to make decisions about the reproductive lives. And that includes having access to abortion services and also helping to affirm women's free will and their moral authority and moral capacity to make decisions. And part of that includes making it possible for women to receive safe abortions. I think, you know, again, it will vary. There are some very important texts in the Jewish tradition that can be looked at, which come. Uh, Judaism takes its text from what we call the First Testament. And so there are some important stories that we can look at that are reflective of women taking agency or women helping women to take agency. There's a story about two midwives who were ordered by the Pharaoh to kill the firstborn children of a certain population of women. And the midway, midwives made a conscious decision not to do that. Instead said, we couldn't do what you ordered us to do because um, the women had the children before we could even get to them. Well, we know through a different kind of lens that in fact, what more than likely happened was that the midwives made a conscious choice to not do that and to empower women and help them to have agency to have their children. There are other areas that we can look at as well. And the same applies to the Islamic tradition where you know the assumption has been made that Islam is completely against abortion. In fact, there are some strands of the Islamic tradition that are very much so pro-woman and don't really speak against a woman having a, an abortion. I think like something like within the first 100 days or so of the pregnancy or something like that. But at central to that is that a woman is allowed to get an abortion before the soul enters the fetus. So there's a time span by which it's said in the Islamic faith that that happens. And so I think we have to look across traditions. And so I think that's how we need to approach that uh, conversation and how providers of faith can begin to articulate why they, they are providers of faith. That was amazing and and very informative. And I hope that our listeners Mm -hmm. also found that very informative too. Yeah, I didn't know a lot of that. So before we wrap things up, Tony, I would just like to ask if you have anything else to add either about the reproductive justice movement or the intersection of religion and abortion. Sure. Thank you. And that's a great question to end with. So I think it's important that providers recognize 
that in terms of the reproductive justice framework, those of us who had a hand in creating this theory and framework are not saying that the reproductive justice framework should trump the reproductive health or reproductive rights framework. In fact, we're saying it's a different lens through which to look at the work and that, in fact, all three frameworks are needed. We need our doctors or or our providers. We need our legal advocates and we need the folks in the RJ movement who, and they all should be walking, working across movements. And so every movement is needed. The reproductive justice theory and framework is more about the lens at which you look at how to do the work. Reproductive justice lens offers a more intersectional way of looking at the work. In terms of working at the intersection of religion and reproductive justice, reproductive justice in and of itself is fairly new. It was not, it didn't come out of a religious framing. It came out of a secular framing, the Black feminist theory and the human rights framework. However, there are principles, particularly the human rights principles, that connect with what many religious traditions say about religion and religious understandings. It's, I think that this is an important area that we need to begin to look at because we have lost so much moral high ground in our movement because we've basically conceded the moral high ground to anti-choice religious conservatives about what a woman can and should do with her body. And instead, I would offer that we have quite a bit to say about what religion says about women and our understanding of free will and our understanding about who has moral authority, who has moral capacity, to make decisions, and that in fact, women do hold moral authority. We know that if we want to be very literal, because we know that even if we look at the Christian tradition and the, if you will, the the figure that we follow the most would be Jesus, we know that in fact, if you were to apply a literal or a scientific or medical lens that if we take the birth of Jesus, Jesus had to come through a woman's vagina. And that's just the physiological reality that there's nothing that says that birth was a miraculous birth. And so what we can take from that is Jesus had to pass through a woman's vagina. And so in that respect, therein lies some moral authority, some moral capacity to be able to make a decision about what's going to happen with your body. I think, especially around now, we have this new department that's been created in the Department of Federal, at the federal level of civil rights around religion and moral conscience. It's important for us to reclaim that moral high ground in ways that I think will support us in being able to advocate on the behalf of women and providers around the provision of abortion services and even around medical services for members of the LBGTQI community. We need to begin to really understand and examine what the theological underpinnings are of anti-choice religious conservatives. I also think language is very important because every time we say things like pro-life and religious right, for me, that's giving up moral high ground. Because in fact, I think I'm pro-life too. I'm pro-life of the woman and if she is deciding to carry a pregnancy to term and if she's deciding to get an abortion. Because being pro-life is more than just about that 
pregnancy resulting in a born child. Being pro-life means what happens for that family long after that child is delivered. What social and economic supports will they receive? It's about will that family have access to not just minimal economic resources, but resources so that family and that child can thrive and live in a safe neighborhood free of environmental toxins and have access to healthy food and be able to live free from violence, both community violence and uh, immediate family violence and externally from violence of law enforcement and state-based violence. It includes so much more than the survival of a fetus. Likewise, I shy away from saying religious right, because as a trained religious scholar, I think that that they're wrong, because that's not my understanding of what the canonical text says across traditions, that in fact, the text is more about liberation and freedom. And so we can't talk about liberation and freedom if we're talking about oppressing individuals from being able to exercise their free will and their moral authority. And so I think it's well beyond time for us to build inroads with progressive religious scholars and clergy and lay people who want to work with us and to start to take back the moral high ground because I believe we stand upon it. And so those would be the the last thoughts that I would have. Those are great thoughts. Yeah, those are wonderful. And let me be the first to say that we are so appreciative of, I know this ended up being a longer recording than our other ones and taking up more of your time, but this was an incredibly powerful podcast. I hope that our listeners feel that same way too and incredibly informative. I'm glad. I'm glad. Well, thank you for having me on the show. And I hope that I gave you all some helpful information and you got everything that you needed. I know personally, having previously worked in abortion care, that would, you know, hearing that when I did do that work would have been extremely helpful. I hope it's equally helpful to our listeners as well who do provide that care. Great. I'm glad I was able to to offer some informative information for everybody. Thank you. Yeah. So thank you so much for your time and all the work that you're doing to advancing reproductive and sexual health care. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of WChat. Are you looking for ways to support us? Check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash WCH. And that's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And subscribe so that you can help us keep the show going while getting awesome extras. Want to be a part of the show? Go to our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com and send us an email. Otherwise, be sure to follow us on Twitter at woman underscore centered and Facebook. (laughs) 